I've made it clear that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers, full stop. You are right, President Biden. Now, after they join that union, who's going to enforce the laws? We'll talk about it. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stop in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California on KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast, KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe for you every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, your mileage may vary. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, Okay, there was some fairly big news over the weekend. And no, it does not involve Donald Trump and CPAC and whatever nonsense went on there because I don't actually care about it. But the big news over the weekend comes out of the U.N. It regards oceans that I suspect, pardon the pun, is likely to be drowned out by other pressing and or maybe sexier matters. So if the radio gods are with me today, Desi Doyen, uh, we will hopefully uh, have a few minutes later in the program to discuss what happened, to discuss the weekend drama regarding yes. the U.N. Convention of the Law of the Sea. Yeah, kind of a big later. deal. Kind of a big deal. And I'm sure it's not going to get the... Uh, coverage that it actually deserves. It already frank. has not gotten the coverage it deserves. Well, we will try to uh, do something about that a little bit later, if time allows. But first, as I've got an excellent guest standing by, waiting to join us, let me get straight into today's main story on the broadcast. Late last summer, according to polling by Gallup at the time, 71% of Americans approved of labor unions. That number was up 3% from the year prior and a full 7% from the year before that prior to the pandemic. 
The approval rating for labor unions and their power of collective bargaining for workers last year was the highest that Gallup had measured since 1965 in its survey that they actually began back in 1936 when Americans' approval for unions was just one point higher than it was last year. The latest approval figures come amid a burst of 2022 union victories, or at least apparent ones, across the country with high-profile successes at major uh, corporations like Amazon and Starbucks. The National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, the federal agency that is supposed to serve as a public watchdog for union members and union rights, they reported a 57 percent increase in union election petitions filed during the first six months of the year 2021. Support for labor unions was highest in the 1950s when there uh, when three in four Americans said they approved of unions with its survey number topping out at 75 uh, percent support back in the 50s. Support only dipped below the 50 percent mark one time. That was in 2009, but it has improved in each of the 13 years since and now sits at a level uh, last seen nearly 60 years ago. That, of course, should be good news for workers. It certainly seems like it. But as you might expect, companies, particularly large companies, are fighting those helping to organize and negotiate for new unions and new union members and new union contracts. In fact, despite high-profile victories for new union organizing campaigns over the last year or so, companies are not only pushing back, they are actually out-and-out violating federal labor law in order to do it including by penalizing and firing workers uh, alleged to be behind the union organizing campaigns. As The Guardian reported late last month, U.S. corporations have mounted a fierce counterattack against the union drives at Starbucks, Amazon, other companies. And in response, federal officials are working overtime to crack down on those corporations' illegal, illegal, anti-union tactics, maneuvers that labor leaders fear could significantly drain the momentum uh, behind today's surge of unionization. The NLRB, the federal agency that polices labor management relations, has accused Starbucks and Amazon of a slew of illegal anti-union practices, among them firing many workers in retaliation for backing a union. Nonetheless, many workplace experts question whether the NLRB's efforts, no matter how vigorous, can assure that workers have a fair shot at unionizing. Quote, we're seeing the same situation over and over. Workers going up against billionaires and billion-dollar companies with an endless amount of resources, while our labor laws are far too weak, said Michelle Eisen, a barista in Buffalo, New York, who helped lead the early unionization efforts of Starbucks in that city. We're all fighting for the same thing against different companies, she noted. The Labor Board is doing its job with the limited resources it has, she added, but Starbucks continues to break the law flagrantly. The union asserts that Starbucks has engaged in illegal retaliation by firing some 150 pro-union baristas and closing down a dozen recently unionized stores. 
Indeed, just last week, a federal administrative law judge found Starbucks committed, quote, egregious and widespread violations of federal labor law while trying to halt union campaigns, according to Washington Post. The judge has now ordered the coffee giant to reopen closed stores and reimburse back pay and damages to employees who launched a nationwide organizing drive at the company. Starbucks showed, quote, a general disregard for the employee's fundamental rights, said Judge Michael Rosas uh, in his 220-page order released last Wednesday. In resolving an extensive case that combined 33 unfair labor practice uh, practices, uh, practice charges in 21 stores in the Buffalo area, Rosas held that the company retaliated against employees affiliated with Starbucks Workers United as they began a union drive back in 2021. As the Post reported, Judge Rosa's order requires Starbucks to halt a sweeping list of behaviors that include retaliating against employees for unionizing, promising improved pay and benefits if workers renounced the union, surveilling union-supporting employees while on site, refusing to hire prospective employees who back the union, and relocating union organizers to new stores to halt the group's activities. Starbucks, the judge said, must reopen stores it closed as union momentum swelled among workers, rescind dozens of disciplinary actions taken against Buffalo area employees, pay, quote, reasonable consequential damages and offer to reinstate terminated workers to their jobs. Rosa's order also calls for Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz and Denise Nelson, the company's senior vice president of U.S. operations, to read a 14-page notice that explains workers' rights and how the company violated the law. That same notice must then be posted in each of the company's stores, according to the judge and shared digitally with all employees. He also ordered Starbucks to begin negotiating a collective bargaining agreement with Buffalo area workers. Correct. They have yet to even begin negotiating. When workers launched their organizing campaign in the summer of 2021, said Gary Bonadonna, Jr., manager of the Workers United Rochester Regional Joint Board in a statement, we could, we never could have imagined the lengths that Starbucks would go to to stop employees from exercising their legal right to organize. This ruling, he said, proves what we have been saying all along. Starbucks is the poster child of union busting in the U.S. Starbucks spokesperson Andrew Troll said the company believes the judge's ruling and order are, quote, inappropriate given the record in this matter. Starbucks is considering, quote, all options to obtain further legal review. Of course, the uh, encouraging judgment in New York comes a year after the organizing campaigns began only uh, regarding what happened to the uh, stores in Buffalo, this ruling, and it only deals with Starbucks specifically. Uh, There's a lot of other companies who are doing the same thing, companies including Starbucks have determined that the penalty for retaliation 
against these workers is minimal and much more appealing than allowing workers to unionize. That, according to Lynn Fox, president of Workers United, the union that workers at more than 280 Starbucks have voted to join. Quote, violating workers' rights has simply become part of the cost of doing business. Newly unionized workers are also frustrated and angry that efforts to reach a first contract are taking so long, with some unions asserting that companies are deliberately and illegally dragging out negotiations, an assertion that the companies deny. Workers won breakthrough union victories at Starbucks in December of 21, and the next year saw several other organizing victories. REI workers had a successful union vote in March of 22, Amazon in April, uh, Apple in June, Trader Joe's in July, and Chipotle in August. But none, none of those companies have yet reached a first contract. The extraordinary recent wave of unionizations that corporate America has faced over the past year has been met with what union supporters say is an equally extraordinary wave of union busting that has slowed and even stopped some of these unionization efforts. Shortly after workers at Chipotle... At a Chipotle in Augusta, Maine, for example, petitioned for a unionization vote in the hope of becoming the first Chipotle in the U.S. to unionize. Well, the company shut down that store. They shut the entire store down rather than allow them to vote to join a union. The NLRB has accused Chipotle of illegal retaliation and sought to order the fast food chain to reopen that store. Chipotle says the closing was for a legitimate business reason, had nothing to do, nothing to do with the with the unionization vote. The NLRB has accused Apple of illegally spying on and threatening workers. The company's anti-union efforts helped pressure Apple store workers in Atlanta to withdraw their request to hold a union election. Although workers at Apple stores in Towson, Maryland and Oklahoma City have voted to unionize. Trader Joe's closed its one wine shop in New York City just days before that shop's workers were to announce plans to seek a union election. The workers have accused the company of shutting the store to quash the union drive and retaliate against the workers. Trader Joe's, of course, denies the allegation. Last month, just one day after employees at a Tesla plant in Buffalo announced their plans to unionize, well, Tesla fired dozens of workers there. Union supporters complained to the NLRB that Tesla dismissed 37 workers, quote, in retaliation for union activity and to discourage union activity. Tesla said the terminations had nothing to do with the union drive. They were simply part of its regular performance evaluation process. In late 2021, an Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama, had been ordered by the NLRB to hold a second election for a union organizing campaign there after the company had blatantly violated instructions from the federal board on how the election should be held. When the second vote was finally held, many of the original organizers of the campaign had sadly moved on, and that vote ultimately failed as well. After the NLRB found that Amazon had committed multiple violations during the first election, we were joined on this show at the time by a labor historian who explained that all of these tactics are familiar 
and repeatedly carried out by major corporations because the penalties for doing so are apparently less than the cost to the companies, as they see it anyway, of allowing union organization. At the time on this program, we discussed the need to improve labor law, even as many labor organizers were hopeful that President Biden's NLRB would be much more sympathetic to workers' rights than they were under the anti-union board during the administration of Donald J. Trump. Well, joining us again today to help make sense of where things are today, where we have gotten uh, a year or two later, uh, down the road for labor, after two years of a seemingly much friendlier Federal Department of uh, of Labor and National Labor Relations Board than we saw during pr- uh, Trump's presidency, certainly, even as union organizing campaigns and contract negotiations are still being quashed by major companies all across the country who apparently find the current penalties for violating labor law to be little more than the cost of doing business. Joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, labor historian and distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He is the author of at least 16 books on related matters, including recent works such as Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy. He's also an inducted member of the Society of American Historians and winner of the 2012 Sidney Hillman Foundation's Sal. Steeton Award for Lifetime Achievement in Labor History. Professor Lichtenstein, we are honored to have you back again on the broadcast today, sir. Glad to be here. Uh, Now, not to uh, pick on uh, Starbucks specifically, Nelson, but they do seem to be making a name for themselves in the union-busting field of late. According to The Guardian, the NLRB has brought 75 complaints against Starbucks that accuse it of more than 1,000 illegal actions. Federal judges have ordered Starbucks to reinstate numerous uh, uh, pro-union baristas who they say were fired illegally. The Labor Board has accused Starbucks of refusing to bargain with workers at 21 stores in Oregon and Washington. And according to the union, Starbucks is deliberately dragging out contract negotiations to dishearten union supporters. Does any of this, even the seemingly huge number of complaints and accusations of violations of labor law, Does any of this surprise you at this point, or is this what you might have expected or par for the course historically during these uh, periods of apparent expansion of U.S. labor labor movements? Yeah, Yeah. unfortunately, it's par for the course, and uh, unfortunately, it shouldn't be surprising. Walmart did this uh, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, when there was a big union push at Walmart. Uh, uh, Companies that that find find themselves uh, subject to these kind of uh, you know, campaigns. Uh, yes, this is part of the course, and it's it's sort of standard operating procedure that we've had now almost fifty years of, of, of specialized anti labor law firms mm. and handbooks. The, 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 what they the, the, the literally the language of the of the you know little handouts they do, the language mm. of the captive audience meeting, the the strategy remains identical. I mean, it works. I mean, why change it? It works. And and, and, and the as the article you were by Stephen Greenhouse you were you were reading um, mm-hmm. the Guardian indicated that um, despite the um, uh, public relations uh, hit that a company like Starbucks, you know, who kind of kind of you know has a kind of uh, has had in the past a kind of warm and fuzzy um, a, a sense of, of you know relationship with customers, it's taking a big public relations hit. Mm-hmm. And other and then other kinds of companies are too. But the but 
managers, you know, they, they've had their meetings. They, they, they run the numbers. They, they've decided that, it's, that, okay, we'll take a, a small, you know, reduction in their growth or, you know, customers, like boycott, and it's worth it. Um, I would say that the, the tremendous pushback that you, that you outlined uh, is really a tribute to the importance of unionism, because I mean, the official line of these companies is, oh, you know, unions not going to change anything. You know, why do this? <laughs> well, they're moving heaven and earth to stop the union. Right. So that's a, that's a tribute to the importance of unionism uh, that they that they're going to do all that. I mean, it, it they don't just send in some some uh, lawyer to um, uh, to the uh, well, the Starbucks in Buffalo or the. Or the uh, the uh, store, uh, they send in their their vice president, you know, mm. and things of that sort. It's very important to them. So, uh, but but it, but unfortunately, it is working now. Now, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is today uh, the most pro labor, the most aggressively pro labor. The it's very good. It's staffed with good people. It doesn't have enough money, but it is staffed with good people. And 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 as you indicated, they're they're putting together uh, really real indictments of these companies mm-hmm. uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, stalling and, uh, and, and you know, uh, illegally firing people. The problem is that the NLRB really doesn't have any uh, disciplinary tools at its command. It just, the, 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 the penalties for, for breaking the law at the NLRB stage are really minuscule. And the, the companies know they will appeal all these things to the courts. Mm-hmm. And, that has that has two virtues. Um, the the first virtue is delay. That's the main that's the main virtue. They know that just wait, just wait. I mean, the turnover rate is a hundred percent at these companies. So just wait a year, and everyone's gone. Or mm. half people are gone. Uh, the second thing is the courts aren't very good. Uh, half of them are, are you know staff of the Republicans, and the Democrats who were uh, the, the, the judges appointed by Democrats, they haven't you know their definition of liberalism. For many years, hasn't included sort of you know backing the, the trade union movement. They they're kind of unreliable. Mm. So the courts are, are you know the, the companies just go to the courts, and uh, you know they they um, they, uh, mm. they they well. I mean, again, delay is their main uh, uh, ally. I'm I'm struck by you said that these are, are specialty lawyers. So these are not just the the, the company lawyers the, the that are already on staff. There is actually an industry is there for anti union lawyering around this country. Yes, yes, there is, and, and they, they law firms Jackson Lewis and uh, you know, one in Chicago, and they're about 10, ten or fifteen of them. Uh, they're they're specialized. They spe- well, they they do many things. Actually, they they have various aspects of their of their sort of uh, uh, work, but but one big part of it is is, is fighting unions. And there's a handbook. It's sort of routine. They know how to do it. Mm. Just uh, because I've seen the, the kind of arguments made that are, you know anti-union arguments at Starbucks, they're identical to what they made at, at Walmart a decade ago or, mm. or, or some other place twenty years ago. Uh, you know, the union can't get you anything. The dues are expensive. You know, uh, you know, it's, this is futile to do it. You create the dis in the workplace, etc. I mean, it's the same line. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and so these guys, they get paid. I mean, here's the other, the other tribute to the importance of unionism. These guys are being paid $500 an hour. That, I mean, yeah. enormous amounts of money. It's just ridiculous. Some guy with a suit walks in there. He, he's going to earn like $1,000 mm-hmm. in a day. And meanwhile, he, he's trying to convince some barista who's earning you know $14 an hour not to join the union. 
I mean, it's, well, what that indicates is it's important. It's yep. important from their point of view uh, to, to keep the union out. And, uh, uh, and actually, I'll tell you something, they're right. They're right, it's important. And, and, here's, the, and here's the reason, because, because what unions do is they don't just um, raise wages, although that's important, and they can do that. Uh, what they do is they, uh, they are a permanent uh, institution which will uh, always be there when, and, and will always be sort of checking and second-guessing what management wants to do, whether it's putting in shorter hours, whether it's, uh, you know, rearranging schedules, mm-hmm. uh, etc. See, you see, one of the things is the consciousness uh, of people is episodic. Right now, as you pointed out, we're in a period of extremely pro-labor sentiment, and that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. And, there, and all these young people, whether at the University of California where I teach, we had this tremendous strike, mm-hmm. and it was a success, or whether it's in, in baristas in, in, in Starbucks, there's a tremendous mobilization taking place. This is terrific. The, what will happen is, and, and the companies, the responses of many companies, okay, we'll give you another dollar an hour. Okay, well, we'll you know, we'll give you, we'll, we'll make some, we'll make some uh, you know, we'll make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. But their strategy is, and they know whether they articulate it or not, consciousness can fade. A year from now, two years from now, maybe there'll be a recession, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Consciousness can fade. And then, you know, we, we will have no, we can just do what we want. You know, we, don't, we aren't worried. But you see, when you have a union and it's an institution, it's a legally recognized institution, it means that three years from now, when every barista has long since left, or at the University of California, when every TA has uh-huh. gone on, right. the union still exists. It now has new people. Right. It's a permanent institution, and therefore, it sort of it's, and it will always be there to check and to 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 mobilize its own members and to be a to confront management. Mm-hmm. And that's and and that is expensive. I mean, in the long run, that is expensive, and that's why these companies, in they, in one sense, they are correct to pay a million dollars. Five billion dollars to some anti-union law firm to stop the union because the union is a, a mechanism for redistributing both power and income, and uh, you know that we need that. And you know, I, I, I'm. It was interesting that all of these companies you talk about, you know, trying to prevent the unionization in the first place and all the tactics that yeah. they go through. Well, in uh, the Amazon warehouse in where is it? A, a JFK eight warehouse on Staten Island, yeah. Amazon labor union, yeah. eighty three hundred employees, a huge victory. Well, yeah. that was last April, almost a year ago, and they have filed a challenge to that victory. And in the meantime, the NLRB has ruled against them. As you said, it's been a very good NLRB uh, in in most parts. Uh, Now Amazon's appealing. But in the meantime, apparently a year later after the unionization votes, there have been no contract talks. So even once they get unions, then they start delaying on even beginning uh, contract negotiations. Right, because as I say, a contract is this legal instrument which says that you know people are in the union and that you know they have a grievance procedure and they have this and that, you know and that you know new people who come in become can be part of the union. The union is like self perpetuating, it's like mm-hmm. immortal. It, it right. continues on into the, I mean, the, the the UAW has been in existence for eighty years. You know, long since long since after the, mm-hmm. the original red hot the radicals formed it you know, in the nineteen thirties. And uh, that's what these companies don't want. So yes, it's at Amazon, the Amazon thing, they, 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 again, it's, it's the standard playbook. Let's, 
you know, okay, they 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 won the they won the um, the uh, uh, the election, mm-hmm. but you know, our contract, you know, we'll just you know we'll just take slow slow walk this forever. And are there are there any re- are there any requirements, uh, Nelson, that after a, a, a successful union vote, uh, you know, for when companies must finally begin contract negotiations with workers, yeah. or is it all just? No, they're, they, they, well, they they begin them, but they, you can you can you can sit around a table forever, and that's what they do. Uh, wow. and they do. They sit around a table forever, uh, and the answer is no. But there is there is no requirement now. Some of the laws that have been proposed, the Pro Act, uh, protect the right to organize, mm-hmm. and other laws, have always said, and, and they do this in other countries. I think in Canada this is done. That you know, if you reach an impasse in collective bargaining, uh, you know, the company delays. Then an arbitrator can come in and impose a contract. That, that happens in um, some public employment in the United States, and it happens in Canada and other places. But uh, but but these but a law of that sort has been filibustered and blocked, uh, you know, for for decades mm-hmm. and decades. So uh, yeah, I mean, what you need to do is change the incentive structure for these companies. And and I have a couple. And, I, and one idea, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, it'll take a while. But right now, one of the, the things that's most exciting in the Obama, in the uh, Biden administration, is the revitalization of antitrust law. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say antitrust, you think about breaking up the company, but that's not what I'm talking about, and that's not really even what the uh, people in the Biden administration, who, who are very pro-union, I mean, people in the in the Federal Trade Commission and in the Department of Justice's um, antitrust division, they are pro-union. They mm-hmm. they aren't some old, you know, uh, white shoe uh, lawyer. And what they want to do, and I mean, it'll take a while, is you say, well, antitrust was originally put together in the 1890s to democratize these giant, you know, uh, centers of economic power. Mm -hmm. And democratization doesn't just mean breaking them up into small units. It can also mean ensuring that there's other voices like that of the consumer and of and the and the workers, and so I think the way to to fight certainly is through it Silicon Valley, and is to say, look, unless you do agree to the to to um, uh, recognize the union, you know, you're going to face your your entire business model is going to face you know problems. I.e., you can't you can't buy their companies. You know, you may be broken up, etc. And I think we need that kind of hammer. Uh, you know, against these companies uh, if they fail to do what, what the law is. I mean, Biden uh, is right that, this, that the, the labor law does not permit a formation of unions. It encourages it. Mm-hmm. In, the 19th, in the 30s, it was, it was designed to democratize the world of work, the world, the world of industry. And, and this was thought to be as important as the democratization of the ballot box. It's, again, it's not just permissive, it, it encourages. It's a good thing have a union. That was the idea in the 30s and today as well. And so what you're suggesting is, so you mentioned uh, the PRO Act, the uh, Protect the Right to Organize Act. Uh, It was passed in the, uh, I believe it passed in the Senate last last session. It passed in the House. Well, that's right. And it couldn't overcome a filibuster in the U.S. Senate. Every single Republican was against it. So uh, that might have made uh, increase the penalties for all of this, uh, required arbitrators to come in when they couldn't. uh, Well, when the companies just refused to negotiate a contract. Uh, So without that, though, you're saying there are laws on the book, the antitrust laws that could be used. Is there any sign? uh, Are you seeing the uh, Obama administration using? I'm sorry, Biden administration. 
administration using those uh, those tools against these companies. Yes, it's, it's the beginning of that, and there, and there was um, it's kind of a, right now Microsoft was on the verge of of, of um, acquiring Activision uh, Gaming for you know many billions of dollars, and it was there was a kind of discussion. I, I don't it hasn't really finished yet. The discourse about okay, we'll allow you to acquire this new company if you issue a statement, and they did. Which says we really aren't, you know, you will be totally, will be genuinely neutral when it comes to unionization. And Microsoft actually did do that. Um, uh, and and in the past, there have been other occasions when that was the case. When when companies, uh, 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 A and P, when it was a big big chain mm-hmm. many years ago, agreed to recognize the uh, union in in the, uh, the retail clerks in those days, uh, in, in 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 return for uh, you know uh, not being broken up. This was in the late 30s and 40s. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that, that, I mean, let me say, and send that to PRO Act. I hope the PRO Act passed. It will be a good thing. It would not solve the problem because as long as you can hire $500 an hour lawyers, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to figure out some way to get around it. What I'm talking about is changing, you know, make, making it a good business decision to have a union because the alternative is your whole business model yeah. is, is, is thwarted. And, and here you're talking about stockholders, you know, taking a hit. And you're talking about all sorts of stuff. And I, and I think we have to, to, to change the mentality of management, even if it requires a two-by-four to do it. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, you have to change, frankly, the price that they are going to pay. Because right now, they are just blatantly, I, I, you know, I mentioned, you know, more than a thousand illegal actions regarding Starbucks in, you know, just the last few months that was found by the NLRB. Obviously, they are not afraid of the law. When it comes to this, so right, you do right. have to improve. I, mean, I think, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, Byrne is bringing uh, Howard Schultz on the carpet before his committee, and I hope he really works him over. Uh, and, yes. and, and you know, and uh, and, and certainly, uh, 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 Schultz's um, uh, reputation is, is going to be in the doghouse. Uh, but that, but that, that alone will not do it. And the other, the other, the other, the other legal strategy here is um, racketeering law. Mm. When you think about racketeering, you usually think, "Oh, that applies to some union or something." Well, it has that, and, and, they, and you know. But actually, when management is involved with a conspiracy to break the law, mm. which is what we're having, what we have here, that, you know, it's a conspiracy. They, they have meetings. They discuss how we're going to break the law. And that's a racketeering, mm. I, and I think that you, you could begin to use other kinds of, of legal um, uh, uh, penalties, legal strategies, and penalties against management, not just the NLRB, which. Again, they know how to fight the NLRB, unfortunately, even when it's run by liberals. So, I mean, I think you need a few of these um, executives to spend some time in prison. Uh, mm. and, uh, that's not, and that has happened in the past. You, that has happened in the past, and it could happen in the future. You mentioned uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. He's chair of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Uh, he yeah. said on Wednesday last week that he was going to force a vote to subpoena Howard Schultz of Starbucks to come in and answer some of these questions. But, you know, I mentioned uh, during my intro, uh, Professor Lichtenstein, that support for unions is now at a 60-year high and even getting close to an all-time high now in the U.S., uh, even as labor union uh, membership in recent decades has declined. Uh, as an historian, what do you attribute this surge now that we're seeing in support for, in recent years for unions? Because it doesn't uh, yet seem that that support is actually making its way into Democratic Party politics. And by and large, um, you know, just 
despite the fact that now 71 percent of the public support it, why aren't we hearing from Democratic candidates for office talking about the importance of passing the PRO Act, whether they can get it over a filibuster right. or not? No, no, that's a very good, very good point. What I'm saying is that sentiment alone, consciousness alone, is not enough. You need, you need institutions. I mean, Martin Luther King didn't just want you know to change the the hearts of of, of his of opponents of his of the what he wanted a law <laughs> and yeah, right so right that would be on the books that would be enforced for for decade after decade and 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 the, the, you know that that changes the political calculus so mm-hmm. it, I mean it, it's a great thing that seventy one or five percent of, of Americans think unions are a good thing but but again that that consciousness is that that sentiment is episodic it could. Next time we have a recession, by the way, support for, for unions tends to decline during recessions mm. um, okay. for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, they have sort of a sense of certain blame. Well, who's going to be blamed for it? I, I mean, obviously today, one reason that the support for unions is high, it's not just these large questions of inequality, which we've had for decades. It's that I think the pandemic had the effect of discrediting management um, in many, many ways. Uh, you workers really felt that, that a kind of, um, they were putting out, you know, they were essential, they were being praised by the, everyone, the nurses and, and, and grocery clerks. And here, the management was just, was not reciprocating. Uh, and I think that sense of betrayal uh, on the part mm. of many workers, whether they weren't thinking about unionism so much, but it, it meant that, that, that they, don't, they couldn't look to, to, to managers and to the company to safeguard them, and either we laid off, and they were mm-hmm. they were given a raise, and then the raise was taken away from them, and they were told to work in un- unhealthy conditions. I think there was a sense of betrayal. It was the same sort of thing in the um, early '30s when uh, the depression hit, and there was a sort of a sense that the companies, which had been you know the uh, stalwart uh, you know bulwarks of prosperity, yeah. that was the, Henry Ford, that they had they had failed. They failed, and they betrayed their workers. And, and then then people look for something else. And I think that's part of it. Got it. Let me, uh, uh, Nelson. I've got uh, very quickly. Two questions I want to hit before I get out. I'm already running late, but this is from a listener. Uh, this came in via email over the weekend, someone who didn't even know I was going to be talking to you uh, about any of this. And it's a question that I was not able to answer, so maybe you can. The listener wrote to ask, uh, can you tell me who regulates public sector teacher union elections? He said, I am a member of the United Teachers of Los Angeles. We recently had our first ever totally online election of our officers uh, using, and he points to a website named IVSBallot.com. Uh, and it sounds like he had concerns about that online election. He, uh, but I don't know who would be the regulatory authority here. Are public unions uh, overseen by NLRB? No, 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 it is not, because school teachers are public employees, mm-hmm. so they are not regulated by the NLRB, uh, uh, although the NLRB itself is, as often has, has, has changed, you know, will make it more easy to vote, so they send them online. No, the public employees teachers are the, the the law that governs that in, in, in LA would be the California public employment law and that uh, you know provides for various kinds of elections uh, and again sometimes uh, elections online is more convenient and better uh, than you know ballot boxes and things of that sort um, so yes it's, it's, it's public employees whether it's, whether it's um, uh, you know uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, or the or the or the police, or the or the uh, firemen, or the school teachers are governed by the state. The state, mm-hmm. and so some states have very good labor laws and, and sort of encourage 
you know, trade unionism. And other states, absolutely not. A state of, uh, you know, like Alabama or Texas, mm-hmm. it's, it's illegal to form a union. They have a public employee. <laughs> right. It's illegal. And, and so, so they, you know, Jeez. they don't have it. So it varies from state to state. All right. So I'll point this uh, listener to the California Public Employment uh, Law for information on that. Finally, <laughs> yeah. what's that? Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say, finally, uh, you know, so it's sort of an odd mix here that we're talking about. Uh, even last time we had you on a year or two ago, it's kind of an odd mix of both good news and bad news, it seems, for labor of late. Are you overall, uh, from a historian's uh, viewpoint here, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic at this point about the, the, the direction that things are going in 2023 for workers in the U.S.? No, no I'm optimistic, and I'll tell you why, because I think there's a whole new layer of, of, of activists and, and militants and engaged people, and we see that, not just at Starbucks, we see all that in higher education, and they're really in motion. The working class does not advance in uniform fashion. There's always one layer that, that's ahead. You know, in the, in the 60s, it was, it was African Americans. In the 1930s, it was immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it's young, um, you know, well, relatively well-educated people, who are in motion? I mean, and and uh, and and they and that's terrific, and I'm, I'm, so that makes me very optimistic. Well, we will end it on that optimistic note. Uh, there are few and far between these days sometimes on this program. Uh, Professor Dr. Nelson Lichtenstein uh, of the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, distinguished professor in the Department of History, uh, labor historian. Always great to have you on, Nelson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your insight. And I hope you won't, uh, you won't mind if we bother you again in the not-too-distant future, sir. Well, you're welcome indeed. Th- th- thank you. Okay, uh, excellent. Uh, well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with, uh, I, I don't know, we may even have some time for some calls. If you want to uh, give us a shout, 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. But I do want to get to Desi Doyen on the oceans. So uh, let's take a quick break. Let Desi get her swimsuit on, whatever uh, is going to be required here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to her straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I'll keep working my way. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com working our way to Desi Doyen for this uh, good news that is otherwise getting uh, sunk by, if you will, by other... By other news, uh, for the first time, or swamped or inundated. Swamped, there you go. So choose your metaphor. In the uh, for the first time, according to uh, AP, in a dramatic overtime session over the weekend, UN members agreed on a unified treaty to protect biodiversity in the high seas, representing what they characterize as a turning point for vast stretches of the planet, where conservation has previously been hampered by a confusing patchwork of laws or sometimes no laws at all. 
The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea came into force initially in 1994 before marine biodiversity was a well-established concept. The treaty agreement's new framework uh, concluded over the weekend. It concluded two weeks of talks in New York on Saturday after they were scheduled to end on Friday, but they reached they, they, they worked all through the night and into uh, uh, late Saturday before they finally got their It's agreement. always like that. It it's, always takes the last, to the last minute. And this updated framework uh, to protect marine life in the regions outside of national boundary waters, known as the high seas, had been in discussion for more than 20 years. But previous efforts to reach an agreement had repeatedly stalled. The Unified Agreement Treaty, reached late Saturday during overtime, will apply to nearly half the planet's surface. So, yeah, seems like kind of a big and, frankly, long overdue deal, Desi Doyen. It is. It is a very, very big deal. As you mentioned, it's like nearly 200 countries. This treaty covers half of the planet's surface, or mm-hmm. nearly half, the part that's covered with water. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, car- conservation has been hampered by this patchwork of regulations because, nearly, you know, only about 1% of the ocean ha- is under some kind of protective regime or mechanism. So, this is a one, new one percent, just one percent. Wow. So that's that's not much. Um, this is a new and very legally binding treaty. It will create a new board to manage conservation of ocean life with a framework to identify and establish new marine protected areas on the high seas. Again, those are the places that are outside areas that are in the territorial waters of countries, which only extend out to about 200 miles mm-hmm. off the coast. So there's a vast area that is not covered. Um, so it also sets up ground rules for operating in those marine protected areas for countries that wish to go ahead and fish there. There will be rules that will be applied to that, and they'll be across the board the same for everybody. Um, And it's really seen as being essential, this treaty, to following through on an agreement that was signed by world governments back in December in Montreal, a very historic conference, to conserve 30 percent of the world's land and ocean by 2030. So the text outlines these mechanisms to conserve and and set up sustainable use rules for these marine biodiversity areas. Um, And it stitches together various current management regimes. There are lots of different groups that have different sectors of authority, like over international fishing or international mining, but they so far have been unable to reach agreements that are actually effective. And sometimes they can't even reach any agreement at all. They're just, you know, mired by infighting. So um, there are other issues that they will also cover, like pollution Mm -hmm. and industrial overfishing that has been uh, depleting marine species and driving many of them to extinction. So this is a, a, a sort of an overreaching – is it fair to say this is sort of the Paris Agreement of the Oceans? That is would that be very o- fair to say okay. that. And it, um, you know, it will require environmental impact assessments mm-hmm. and apply – everybody ha- will be applied and have the same rules applied to them for projects that they want to undertake, especially really harmful activities like uh, deep sea bed mining, mm-hmm. which without any kind of regulation or oversight in place, you know, basically a company can just go out there and mine at will with nobody watching to make sure that they're not destroying something important that we need. You know, or geoengineering experiments. Those are also being considered right now to combat climate change like ocean acidification. Mm-hmm. So we really 
really desperately need to have an international regime in place to prevent rogue countries from taking experiments like geoengineering in the ocean that could affect everybody. Let me ask you about that. Georgetown marine biologist uh, Rebecca Helms uh, notes, uh, quote, we only have two uh, we, we we only really have two major global commons, the atmosphere and the oceans, adding that uh, while the oceans may draw less attention, quote, protecting this half of Earth's surface is absolutely critical to the health of our planet. And they do work together. That would be both the uh, the oceans and the atmosphere. I, yes. I recall when we, we started our Green News report. Uh, now, just over 14 years ago, we're in our 15th year of that. It's heard twice weekly on the broadcast. Uh, one of the points that you often made in response at the time to climate change deniers uh, who had claimed, oh, the Earth is not warming at all. Remember that? <laughs> uh, not warming at all. Uh, where would you get such an idea? And besides, even if it was, carbon dioxide is nothing that can actually harm anything. And you always responded, well, if it's not happening happening at all, how do you explain the acidification of the oceans. And those deniers would never have any real answer uh, to that, would they? No. And, uh, so they do work together, right? Oh, absolutely. So the oceans and the atmosphere, it's an interactive system. It's yeah. a global interactive system. The oceans absorb 90% of the heat that humans mm-hmm. are uh, trapping with our release of greenhouse gases. The ocean also absorbs carbon dioxide, like a, co- like a can of Coca-Cola mm-hmm. or a can of soda. And so that is what ocean acidification is. It is the absorption of all of these excess amounts that humans of, of carbon dioxide that humans are releasing into the atmosphere. And ocean acidification is a very serious, very dangerous problem that could actually literally kill life in the oceans. Because if you have an over if, if the ocean becomes too acidic, then shell uh, forming organisms mm-hmm. like mollusks and clams, for example, shell forming organisms cannot form their cells, their shells. They, they don't have the correct chemistry in the water of the ocean to do so. And that has very grave implications for the food supply in the ocean. So yeah, ocean acidification is definitely a consequence of man-made global warming and our release of carbon dioxide. And is that what's responsible? Responsible for the death of the coral reefs around the that is country, that the is well it's two it's it's a it's a multiple problem for the coral reefs part of it is ocean acidification which dissolves the reefs and dissolves the little organisms that live in them but it's also ocean heating mm-hmm. again the oceans absorb a lot of the heat that humanity is trapping in the atmosphere that's part of that interactive system and the ocean heat is what's killing the uh, the the ocean the the reefs the coral reefs now there's a really crucial part of this that the treaty includes. It includes a commitment by developed countries to provide an additional 50% of their annual financial contributions under the agreement to help developing countries. Mm -hmm. That was a big sticking point, as it was with Paris Agreement, how much developed countries who have made all this money and gotten rich by exploiting and extracting the ocean's resources for the developing countries to, for the developed countries, I should say, to help developing countries who do not have the capacity necessarily to protect their waters by themselves. And of course, they are the ones most at threat to all of this and, you know, are likely to be overtaken by uh, many of the oceans that we're talking about regulating. Yeah. And there's one last component that's very important. Nations must now internally ratify the treaty for it to come into effect. So as you mentioned, the UN Convention Law of the Sea came into force in 1994. And although the United States recognizes the law of the sea as a codification of the customary international laws, the U.S. has never ratified it. 
Yes. Republicans halted the ratification. Mm-hmm. They've never allowed it to go through. Even as most recently as uh, the Obama administration in 2012, Republicans blocked it. But, you know, we still abide by it, but we don't we aren't a party to it. it so that is going to be a thing that's going to also be a major a major controversy. It has to be formally, uh, formally approved by the U.S. Senate. By two-thirds of the U.S. Senate. Two-thirds And of the, the US Senate Republicans, you know, they, they are afraid that it's going to undermine U.S. sovereignty. But really what they're talking about is the ability of private industry to basically extract whatever they want. Yep. That sounds like them. That's where we are. Thank you very much, Desi Doyle. Let me take one more quick break here. We'll come back. Uh, like I said, if, if you do want to get in, a call 818-985-5735. We'll see what we have time for after we come back from this break. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Oh, that's an oldie but goodie. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with your favorite hits from the 80s. That's the Tom Tom Club. Uh, I've got uh, – we'll see if, uh, we, if we have time for some calls, 818-985-KPFK. Uh, this is the time of year, the, the one time of year when I find something nice to say about uh, the, the horrific Republican Congress that we all suffered under during the reign of George W. Bush. When I recognize nearly the only thing that I can recall that I'm willing to say – uh, nice about that period, other than uh, the that particular Congress's extension for 25 years of the Voting Rights Act, which obviously they did not mean because the very same Republicans have been supporting the Voting Rights Act being gutted ever since by the U.S. Supreme Court. But the one thing that they have not yet screwed up is their extension of daylight savings time to make the season of later sunlight go longer by starting in March, going all the way through to November. Daylight saving time begins, uh, frankly, not a moment too soon uh, this coming weekend, March 12, I think it is. Uh, um, but now there's also this. A bipartisan group of 12 U.S. senators on Thursday reintroduced legislation that would make daylight saving time permanent nearly a year after the Senate voted unanimously to end clock switching. The Senate back in March of 22 voted to end the twice annual changing of clocks in the U.S. in a move promoted by supporters advocating brighter afternoons and more economic activity. But the bill failed to get a vote last year in the U.S. House because lawmakers could not agree on whether to keep standard time or permanent daylight saving time. That according to New Jersey Democratic Rep. Frank Pallone. Florida Republican Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio were joined by 10 other senators, including Democrats Ed Markey and Ron Wyden, in reintroducing the Sunshine Protection Act. Stupid name, but a great idea. While uh, Florida uh, Congressman Vern Buchanan introduced companion legislation in the House, 
Senator Scott said regarding the only thing that I ever that I may ever agree with uh, Rick Scott about. He said, quote, changing the clock twice a year is outdated and unnecessary. It's time for Congress to act and pass the good bill today. Correct. Correct, Senator Scott. You never hear me say that. Correct, Senator Scott. Uh, but only if it will make daylight saving time permanent. If they make standard time permanent, I withdraw my endorsement, Desi Doyen. That's it. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, Science is not on your side for that, but we can talk about oh, that another yes, day. Oh, yes, it is. And we will talk about it another day. According to supporters, the change would uh, help enable children to play outdoors later and reduce seasonal depression. I know it does for me. I don't know why Desi Doyen hates children so much that they don't want to let, her, let, let them play outdoors. Critics say that the change would force millions of school children, however, to go to classes in the dark for part of the year. Well, maybe some of the kids should have thought about that before they became born. I'm just saying. Sleep experts, there's such a thing as sleep experts. They say that uh, daylight savings time makes it harder to be alert in the morning. Then again, sleep experts are welcome to sleep in an extra hour if they wish. Since 2015, about 30 states have introduced legislation to end the twice-yearly changing of clocks. Some states proposing to do it only if neighboring states do the same. See, even a majority of states back the idea. Like George W. Bush, I am a uniter, not a divider. Uh, this could uh, supporters say the changes uh, could prevent a slight tick uptick in car crashes. That typically uh, occurs around time changes. See, so I'm saving people's lives here. They argue the measure could help businesses like golf courses that could draw more use in the evening uh, daylight. So I just want to help Donald Trump stay in business. Is that so bad? You're welcome. Don't worry. The bill will allow uh, Arizona and Hawaii, which do not deserve uh, observe daylight savings time. They don't deserve it either uh, to remain on standard time. Uh, but there you go. Disagree? Feel free to let me know. I am bradcast at bradblog.com via email. You can uh, tweet me or text me or whatever on the Facebooks, the Twitters, and the Mastodons at the Brad Blog. We got to get out. My thanks to our board operator, Yaut Orozco, my producer, Desi Doyne, and my guest today, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of University of California, Santa Barbara. That's it, I believe. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. No paywall thanks to supporters who help the broadcast stay on your public airwaves. That's it. We'll see you at all of the above. Hopefully, uh, 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 we'll see you again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1930. That was the day hundreds of thousands of activists and unemployed poured into the streets worldwide for International Unemployed Day. It was a coordinated campaign to protest conditions created by the stock market crash just four months earlier. Workers and the poor were the first to feel the most devastating impacts of what would quickly become the Great Depression. Organized primarily by communists, the day's actions highlight 
highlighted the work of the newly formed unemployed councils and had mass appeal. The unemployed councils worked to distribute food, prevent evictions, secure utilities, and link the needs of the unemployed to the trade unions. The councils mobilized the unemployed in support during the strikes as a way to stop scabbing. They organized hunger marches and protests at relief offices. Tens of thousands came out in every city for the Unemployed Day demonstrations. In North America, cities like Boston, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Seattle, and San Francisco all drew massive crowds estimated at 40 to 50,000 each. Protesters demanded jobs and unemployment insurance. In Chicago, tens of thousands overwhelmed the streets for more than 12 hours. In Detroit and New York City, competing organizers challenged the crowd estimates with as many as 100,000 turning out in each city. Confrontations broke out between protesters and the police in both cities. Across the country, many of the unemployed were arrested or hospitalized. In New York City, outraged communist activists asserted that protesters were met with water hoses, tear gas, and guns as they marched down Broadway to City Hall. Critics argued that the crowd estimates were wildly exaggerated. But the day of action forced governments around the world to acknowledge deteriorating conditions and the devastating impact of the Great Depression. 